I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all women of color media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are international, on air across the United States and in Ghana and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, our main event conversation, Africa Bambata, hip-hop's godfather, Zulu Nation founder, and alleged sexual abuser. And our hot topics, hot topic one, Erica Badu, 140 character victim blaming. And hot topic two, Ohio State University campus uprising. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Yabba Blay and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. Dr. Yabba Blay is a professor, producer, and publisher. Dr. Blay is the Dan Blue Endowed Chair in Political Science at North Carolina Central University, the creator of the multimedia global project Pretty Period, and publisher and editor in chief of Black Print Press. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. Dr. Lindsay contributes articles to Cosmopolitan. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's start with our main event, Africa Bambata. Hip-hop's godfather, Zulu Nation founder, and alleged sexual abuser of young and teen boys. Hear the name African Bambata, and if you love or know anything about hip-hop, you probably think this. Party people, party people, then you'll get funky. Suicide and force, then you'll get funky. The Zulu Nation, then you'll get funky. Yeah, just hit me. Just hit the funk and hit me. Just get on down and hit me. That bond just getting so funky. The 1982 mega-hit Planet Rock is part of hip-hop's beginnings. You might also think Zulu Nation. That's the international hip-hop organization Bambata founded in the 1970s. You might think Armin Ra of hip-hop culture. You might think South Bronx cat hip-hop pioneer. You will now have to add alleged sexual abuser of teenage boys. Ronald Savage was the first man to step forward and say he was sexually abused as a teenager by Africa Bambata. Take a listen. My name is Ronald Savage. When I was younger, I was molested by Africa Bambada. I met them when I was around 14. When I was in the ninth grade, um, I was cut in one day, and um, I had called Africa Bambada because um, I didn't have nowhere to go. So I went up to, um, to his house, um, 
he paid the cab and um, I was in the living room, another gentleman was there and it looked like they was DJing. And um, um, Bam told me that I could go into um, his bedroom because the TV was on. So I went to the bedroom and I was in there and I said I was in the bedroom no more than three, four minutes and um, Bam took out his and um, he started it and he told me um, that for me to take mines out and at that time I didn't really understand what was. So he was telling me, oh, that everybody does it. He unzipped my pants and he took it out and he started and then he put my hand on it and then started making me Then he left the room and the guy that was in the living room, um, he came into the room and when he came into the room, his thing was already out. And I got up off the bed and I left another time um, Bam came to my house. The thing that really um, stayed in my mind and really freaked me out is um, I had to lay on the bed and I had to cross my legs and he would put his in between my legs and then pump up and down. And I remember at the time I had this big guy like on me and it from that time I I bugged out. I'm not gonna lie, like it it confused me, like cause I I had never had sex before in my life. No one's never touched me like that. And to be touched, my first time being my first time being touched was by a man. During the course of growing up, I told like my close friends what happened to me because at that time I didn't know who to trust. You know, I didn't feel safe because they all used to come to my house, like the Zulu Nation Council and um, and Bam. So I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know if I told what's something gonna happen to me, what's something gonna happen to my sister, to to my mother. You know, so I just held it in. I used to keep it bottled up and doing the course with my girlfriends and stuff like that. Their thing was that I didn't know how to show affection and I, I tried to commit suicide. Ronald Savage says he spoke out in a bid to change New York's statute of limitations which bars child sexual abuse victims from pursuing criminal charges or civil penalties after their 23rd birthday. He says he doesn't want money. It is about what justice would mean for him and other survivors. I'm not looking for any compensation from um, Africa Bambada. That's not what this is about. Um, I never asked them for money. Um, I never was seeking money from them. The only thing I wanted was for this man to answer my question, why me? You know, that's, that's my justice for myself because I just wanted to know why me? My reasons for coming forth is I feel that something needs to happen because there's, if it took me this long to come out and people are now telling me, oh, you know, it's nothing that can be done. 
because of the stature of limitations. I feel, honestly, I feel that the stature of limitations should be longer, or if not, done away with. It took me to 50 to be comfortable to talk about it, to let it out. So I feel that how can people put limitations on something you've never been through? No, you don't, you, you, you can't, you haven't experienced the pain, the suffering that I went through since a young teen up until now. And then for it to be told that I have up until 21 or 23 to report it, that's totally unfair. Because at that age, I had just told my parents. I wasn't ready to tell the world. Every day of my life, I think about what happened to me. And it bothered me because I was always afraid to get it out, afraid to talk about it, you know, because I, I never wanted to be judged. I always wanted to be like everyone else. Mr. Savage is now 50. He's a former music industry executive and memoir writer. He details what he says Africa Bambata did to him in his memoir. Ronald Savage's voice was the first. That news broke. The hip-hop world was stunned and shook. Its foundation seemed to crumble. Other men, survivors of sexual abuse, spoke up. Here's a survivor speaking with Troy Terrain, known as Star, whose show is The Star Chamber and who broke the story. Now, this survivor reveals the abuse started as a preteen and went on for years. He says he was with the Zulu Nation, who he also says failed to protect him. Take a listen. It's your claim that Africa Bambada performed oral sex on you for a number of years, uh, from your pre-teens through, through your teens, yes? And when you went to jail and came home from prison, is, is that correct? Nah, it, it, stopped, it stopped before I went to, um, before I went to jail. <laughs> but for, for, for some time, yeah. Okay, so, so what... For, 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 for years. It wasn't no one, two, three thing. It was, it was years. This survivor went on to explain he made a video and only agreed to take the video down because Africa Bambata admitted his molestation and agreed to get help. Except Bambata did not. Listen. When I took that video down, I took that video down because Bam promised that he was going to go get help. Right. He cried like a baby. He admitted to molesting me in front of some of his council members, in front of some strong brothers. And, and at the end of the day, he never went to go get help, never went to go get counselor, and never went to make none of the programs that he said he was going to make for the youth. Reaction was swift. Bambata was defended by some. Survivors were accused, blamed, silenced, ridiculed. There was deflection, denial, and dismissal. The Zulu Nation, the international organization founded by Africa Bambata, responded by detailing Bambata's list of accomplishments. Then came an open letter written by DJ Cutting Candy, a people's hip-hop DJ scholar, Julie C., an MC, hip-hop organizer and educator, and Rosa Clemente, hip-hop organizer and 2008 vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. Its title was Hip-Hop Breaking the Silence, an open letter to our beloved community. And it was signed by scholars, activists, artists, writers. This has become a blueprint for dealing with icons whose names are now also known in connection with sexual abuse, assault or rape. We've had and still have R&B singer R. Kelly, comedian and Cosby show creator Bill Cosby. And now we have to face, figure out and talk about Africa Bambata. Stigma, shaming, silencing, judgment, blaming. How do you create space for survivors 
and deal with icons who abuse even as they build? How does a community negotiate with its heroes whose deviant criminal behavior makes them abusers? How do you build and protect movements when they are led by those who become idols and go on and abuse and abuse? Let's talk icons, sexual abuse, accusations, survivors, and our stories. Making sense, making a way. Dr. Trevia Lindsay, let me start with you. Well, I think this is at such an important moment for us to be discussing this, particularly within the context of the hip-hop generation, as we see many of these conversations have a similar pattern. People, the accusations are out there. People respond viscerally to them. And oftentimes that visceral response of defense for those people we love, we love their work, and we have this attachment to these figures, and we tend not to believe survivors. We tend not to believe the things that are coming forth in these allegations, these graphic, these traumatic, these painful things. We want to silence that. And immediately, I think the defense is to go on the attack, to really deny, 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 which creates a culture in which we're not hearing the voices of survivors, and more importantly, we're not believing the voices of survivors. And I think within hip-hop in particular, there's a space for us to call out, bring wreck, and address this within our community very specifically. Many of us within the hip-hop community have also survived sexual abuse and sometimes at the hands, and most times, in fact, at the hands of people that we love, that we care about, and negotiating that moving forward. And when we feel that we're ready to speak up, if we speak up and speak out about what our experiences have been with sexual abuse, can often seem like we are betraying the communities that we reside in, that we'll be losing kinship, that we'll be losing family. So part of this is figuring out how do we say We need to talk about the issues within our family by first acknowledging that these kinds of violations are happening and providing a space in which we can talk about healing um, and restorative justice, which is a recurring refrain that we're hearing from those speaking out, um, like Rosa Clemente, like Cut and Candy, like other individuals who are speaking back, who are members of the Zulu Nation, and saying we need to address this, we need to talk about this, because we know all too well personally and in our communities the risk that so many of us face when our voices are silenced around abuse and violation. Dr. Yababla, your thoughts? It's always hard when issues of sexual abuse um, come to the fore. And, you know, I'm very clear that when these things come out and we're responding to them as a community, most oftentimes on social media, I'm aware that I'm, I'm reading this and I'm feeling these things through my own lens as someone who was molested as a child, you know? So I think I'm very sensitive to those power dynamics when you have children, you know, who often come out as adults to now be able to speak their truth. And so I know that in in looking at social media and and seeing the conversation and even the lack thereof um, around this particular scandal, as it were. I'm just interested also in the ways in which we are responding, and it feels like, you know, very similar to the conversations we've had around Bill Cosby's transgressions around R. Kelly. I feel like the hip-hop community is a microcosm of, you know, the larger black community, a larger diaspora community, Um, and as Treva said, it's reflective of a family, you know, and I feel like the ways in which we are struggling to make sense of these things mirrors in many ways the ways that we struggle 
within our own family units. And so they're silencing, you know, their anxieties about what does this mean if this is true? How does this reflect upon me as someone who knows this person or someone who admires this person? Or what can I just hurry up and do to make this go away? And so I've seen a lot of disturbing responses. Um, I think the, the I think the Zulu Nation's response um, or initial response is disturbing to some degree that, you know, the automatic kind of jump to say that this is a COINTELPRO inspired type of conspiracy to bring this brother down, I think it's just offensive, you know, to the victims. Um, and so it's hard for me. I, I'm actually struggling to find the words. You know, I think there's so much that's going on um, in the conversation. I think there's a lot of anxiety, A, not only about sexual abuse, but I think there's something very interesting happening in terms of what this means for masculinity, what this means for black masculinity, particularly in the ways in which it's constructed in the context of hip-hop. So a lot of responses seem to be this anxiety, well, is Bam gay, right? And it's like, what does that have to do any, with anything? We need to focus on what these victims are saying and ultimately the implications of that. It is really um, so hard. And I think um, in these moments we have two things. With social media, the... Um, the opportunity to have connected community that is geographically all over the place and all over the world, which is a powerful thing. But in the time of a revelation about sexual abuse, we really see the limitations and the inadequacy of social media. Because I think part of the challenge is recognizing that the emotional labor involved in hearing the allegations and then just dealing with your initial feelings and recognizing them as such is its own challenge. But because social media allows us to, of course, communicate those initial feelings, they become so much bigger than what they are, which is part of a process in dealing with something that is shocking. And so I think in the time of social media, what it allows us to do is to pay attention if we choose to do that work, to creating a process that can allow us to begin to deal with something that is as shocking and as hurtful um, and as painful as these revelations are. And I always think, no, I definitely agree with you, um, Yaba, that it's absolutely a microcosm that is reflected within our families. Um, Chiva said this as well, within our communities. And it is as hard to find the language when it is someone who is beloved and respected and who has influenced you. Um, and it's recognizing that in that, in that statement that the Zulu nation made about a Cointel pro conspiracy, it allows those who may have been bystanders to distance themselves from their own potential culpability as far as silence goes, knowing what was happening and being silent. And that is such a major part of um, a toxic masculinity. The, the power that men find in being bystanders when heinous things are going on, and then when they come out, trying to articulate their reasons for being silent. And I think part of the process is a division of the emotional labor that is just difficult to process all of this. And that there aren't necessarily right answers, especially when the news breaks. There are really feelings, a whole different set of different types of feelings that include deflection and denial. Um, 
the challenge is to not stay where those initial feelings come. And so for me, absolutely, hearing the survivors, like sitting, listening to Ronald Savage, listening to the Star Chamber was so, um, it was so painful. And I felt so for um, Ronald Savage. Listening to the other survivor who really spoke about um, how much he had tried to do to actually deal with the issue within the Zulu nation and their refusal to take on something that he requested again and again and again and again. And now that it's out, there's a whole nother conversation. And so, you know, I'm reminded of the work that I do around emotional justice and the recognition that emotionality has a very particular power that cannot be replaced by ideology or, or intellect. Um, it is its own thing and it needs its own space. It needs its own process. It needs its own language for us to try and figure it through. So I want to ask you both this. The uh, open letter that Rosa Clemente and, and others put together was really about saying, let's find a way. And I want us to just think about how do we do that? How do we find a way to negotiate needing to hear the survivor stories and for some folk almost feeling that listening to the survivor stories becomes a betrayal of somebody that they've admired and loved there's such a conflict for so many of us in trying to figure out a way to deal with it and I wonder if we've begun to do some of the work in trying to find language in trying to find process in trying to find practice to deal with it what do you all think let me start with you Trevor I think we are feeling our way through creating that process. I think the language of restorative justice is something that is coming up again and again in these moments for reconciling the issues of someone being beloved, holding that person accountable, holding our survivors close to us and acknowledging their pain, addressing their pain, and the ongoing um, ramifications of this pain, this lived trauma, this experience, the thinking about these things as all as verbs, not as nouns. It didn't just happen. It's something that is happening. Um, the love ethic that we say there is no justice without love. And so we have to think about what that means in terms of, which I think is really difficult to do in terms of our, the survivors as well as the perpetrators. If we're saying we want to end this kind of violence in our communities, it's not just about getting these people out of our communities. That's the difficult part of this. And, and that is often, I think, as a survivor myself, one of the hardest parts of doing that kind of work because there is a distancing and a safety that we want to create. But we also have to think about this in a space of how do we rebuild trust in a community when that trust is broken on so many levels, not just between the perpetrator and the survivor, but also between the community that stood by and knew what the perpetrator was doing, the community that second-guessed, third-guessed, fourth-guessed, the accusers, the victims, and the people who don't even have the language because of their own trauma to really think through and be in space with and hold space for these kinds of stories, which seem to be so incredibly prevalent um, in our society. Um, and then thinking about that in the context of what are the first steps for me. So I think some of the first steps we started to see with these letters, actually saying we need to do something, recognizing that need, saying we hear you survivors, we feel you survivors, which is I think an important um, step beyond just hearing what they're saying, but feeling that, acknowledging our own pain, saying 
as a hip hop generations, people raised within the culture that we have experienced this kind of violation and our silence has not made the situation any better. In fact, it's created a dynamic in which people don't feel in any way um, accountable to holding ourselves to a new realm of creating a justice framework for dealing with this, that this is, I think, going to be, and I hope it's going to be, I should say, a beginning of what does restorative justice look like within hip-hop? What does it look like for us not just to call out and to address and to, um, to create space for survivors, but really deal with what survival then looks like, what unlearning predatory behavior looks like, what creating a culture in which misogyny and patriarchy are things that we find deeply offensive and we become committed to in our ethic, in our music, in our art, in our production, in our politics, in all of these different realms. And I think the advocacy that comes with that is going to have to pull from a number of different places in order, to, in order for victims, survivors, to truly reach that place where they feel like they can hold space again with us because we violated a trust. And I hold the we in this because... It's not just the perpetrators, but we as a community, what have we allowed? And understanding our own responsibility and accountability in this situation. Yeah, Bablay? There's a lot. You know, I actually, you know, I commend the sisters for coming forth with this open letter. I know that um, Paradise Gray of X-Clan also began to write a statement. And if I'm honest, I was actually a little surprised um, by the swift response. I think perhaps my own assumptions about how, quote-unquote, hip-hop would respond um, to these allegations. I guess I assumed that there'd be more, more silencing and, and more of an attempt to um, continue to uphold this prominent figure within the culture and within the history. But, I mean, the reality is that it's bigger than hip-hop. And so when I read these statements and, and, and I see the conversations that are happening, I do see people trying to make sense not just of something, oh, this is a hip-hop problem. This is a problem within our society, you know? And so these conversations, are, I think, are about honoring our humanity, um, about honoring our relationships, trying to figure out a way for us to have a conversation that will go beyond this particular moment in this particular um, set of incidences. But, you know, the other thing that I'm also thinking about, and, and it just makes me wonder um, – what it is about this particular incident that has us ready to, and when I say us, I mean all of us, right, male, female, generation, between and across generations, has us ready, willing, able to come up with these statements, to come up with um, a model for justice, a model for honoring the victims. But, like, this is not the first incidence of, of, of sexual abuse within hip-hop. Right. It looks a particular way. I think because children are involved, there's a, a particular um, sense of emergency um, in terms of response. But there are many ways in which sexual abuse um, is rampant within and throughout the community. And so I just have those kinds of questions, you know, um, can we use these statements and these models? Um, in a way that it goes up, uh, across the board, you know. So when we're talking about the rape and sexual assault of women, you know, can we use this as models um, to address that as well? And so, again, I mean, I commend 
hip-hop. I recognize that this is bigger than hip-hop. I don't know that it's fair to even say that this is a hip-hop issue because Zulu Nation is an organization. You know, it is an institution um, in its own right. It is reflective of a particular moment in hip-hop. I also think that it, it's reflective of, of, of particular folks within hip-hop, but I, I don't want to say that it is hip-hop, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I commend the statements, I commend the response, but I also recognize that it is bigger than hip hop. And so, how do we use this moment, I guess, as a launch pad into into more conversation? Yeah, no, I really um, appreciate that, and it's it's definitely important to recognize it's bigger than hip hop. There's something about um, being a, a people in this we're in this kind of unrelenting, constant state of mourning or grieving something. And so the opportunity to work through um, the feelings of grief and get to the other side. If psychologists say that there are like seven stages to grief, part of one of which is anger, one of which is denial, then part of the revelations um, around Africa Bambata for those who have that kind of reverence for him, there's a loss and a mourning that goes on. And um, I come again to just the idea that as well as restorative justice, which is dealing with the issue after the fact. So we now know that there's four men have come forward and we know this for fact, that if four men have spoken, the number that have not will always be much, 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 much larger. And who may never speak um, in, in a public way that where we ever get to hear their voices necessarily. But that what is happening for those voices and those who have not spoken represent the largest part of the community. I'm not just talking about Africa Bambata now. I'm talking about sexual abuse within the community as a whole. The largest number of voices are always those who haven't spoke, spoken in a necessarily public way, but there may be knowledge or information within their circle, within their community, within their family. Um, and that whilst I, I also commend the statements, I want, to, I want us to be careful about... Um, really paying attention to platform and not necessarily engaging so much with process. And so the symbolic power of a statement is really important. It's the process of dealing with the survivor stories and with a Bambata that becomes how you go from restorative justice to a preventative model. And I never want to underestimate just how hard that is um, because I think it's a really difficult thing to say, but I think part of the willingness to make this kind of big statement is a, it's a manifestation of the male privilege. There's an, there's an element where we think men are hurt more or hurt more badly. I'm thinking about, I don't know if I ever saw this same kind of statement when, um, uh, with what was happening with R. Kelly and all the young girls across Chicago and beyond who were um, sexually assaulted. Uh, who allegedly sexually assaulted by him. And I don't remember seeing anything with that kind of, that kind of platform, that kind of power. And, and so I want to, um, it's like multiple pieces of work at the same time and recognizing there's a complexity that, to that. And also I want us to just honor the fact that it, it, we ha it has to be okay to feel our way, which means we will get it quote unquote wrong and then try and figure out a way to take another step forward and get it right. And that every step of that way, there will be a combination of mistakes as we find a way, if we do the ultimate difficult work of 
getting all the way to the end. And then what does the end look like? I remember listening to the survivor talking about he really wanted Bambata to get help. And Bambata had broken down. There were tears. There was also admissions. And there was the recognition that he was going to get help. And part of what I'm really, um, I'm really looking to see is holding a community holding the perpetrators to some kind of consequence for their action. And that becomes another complicated conversation. But I think it's really important since we know that hurt people hurt people, since we know that the way sexual abuse happens is through there's this legacies of untreated trauma. And it's, so it happens again and again and again. We know that serial child abusers have multiple, multiple victims, many of whom we never know. And so what does dealing with the perpetrator even begin to um, look like? What do we want to see um, with that in order to create change? Because I, I always feel restorative justice is for the survivors and the families of the survivors to find a way to come back together, especially after feeling betrayed. What happens for the perpetrators, though? What do we want to see there? I don't know if that's a, that's a, a conversation for us to think about, but I just wondered about your thoughts. That's a very, very difficult question, a question I think... I'm still struggling with to to ask myself what what would I want? What do those steps look like? And I think part of that is right the survivor um, for the survivors that we it's so important for me to hold that for a second. But for the perpetrator, the accused, one to hold himself accountable for what he did. Um, that beyond an apology, I think accountability means really wrestling with what it means to start to dismantle, in this instance, toxic masculinity. Um, I think about counseling, but counseling that's really geared towards, and I think this is a different model of counseling that perhaps we should be insisting upon about how we unlearn, and, and that's a collective we, not just men, but people across our different communities learn and unlearn toxic masculinity to unlearn violence as a way to think through domination and power and to engaging in dynamics with people. I think this is a lot of unlearning that has to happen because someone that's being accused of being a serial abuser means there is something deeply embedded within this person, but also within the society, within the community that they're in, that they didn't feel that this is a transgression or um, behavior that could cause another person trauma that suggests that something is normalized within them about this. And so part of that will be unlearning that as a normal or acceptable behavior, acceptable ideas about other people, about how one engages with another person and understanding their actions as harmful and that being deeply rooted in these instances in misogyny, in patriarchy, in toxic notions of masculinity that are so deeply tethered to violence in enacting power and domination onto another person. So I would hope whatever kind of counseling we might imagine in this framework actually wrestles with that and deals with that and brings together community with other perpetrators to have these kinds of conversations as well. What are the commonalities that exist between these individuals that are committing this? Because the numbers are just too large for this to be these singular instances or these exceptional uh, abusers. But really we're raising abusers in our community. We're raising abusers. And we need to think about what is in our community that allows for that kind of socialization to occur and to create a counseling model 
a therapeutic model that actually deals with the unlearning of that kind of toxicity. Last word to you, Yababla. Added to looking at um, Bambada as a, 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 as the perpetrator, I would say that he's not the sole perpetrator in this instance, right? Because in order for him to maintain the position that he's he's had for all these years and the power that he's had within the community, particularly among these young boys. There are folks who had to protect him, you know what I mean? Like, And so in listening to the victim's stories, there's this common thread that so-and-so know or so-and-so, you know, like it was just kind of common knowledge in a particular circle of folks. And so in this moment, I think it's easy for folks to look at this and say, well, that's Bam and that's not me, but it is you, right? It's all of us to some degree. And so like Tree was saying with this unlearning, I think we all have to face the fact um, that this is reflective of other dynamics within our lives. And so how do we continue to allow this and allow for this abuse to continue, whether it's turning, you know, our head um, to rumors or to what we think we know is going on um, or whether it's distancing ourselves? Like, what is it that we are all doing to support this kind of culture of abuse? And so I think um, it is also hard for me to think about what it is, what does justice look like for a perpetrator, Um, because there's a variety of thoughts that anyone who survived abuse um, can have at any point in their life in terms of what justice might look like. But I think insofar as we're talking about this, um, you know, within the larger context of hip-hop and the ways in which we're responding as a community, I think we need to make it also bigger than BAM, right, and so that we all need to figure out how it is that we all um, hold ourselves accountable. And just this last piece from um, the open letter uh, from this whole community, they wrote that in the interest of healing and truth, we as members of the hip hop community, many of whom are survivors of abuse, are calling for an end to the silence. Why the survivors that in our house tonight? Put your hands up. Why the survivors that? That was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Yabba Blay and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the U.S. in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7, Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. What? Time for the first of our hot topics. Erica Badu, 140-character victim-blaming. Erica Badu, molasses voice, singer, songwriter, producer, activist, badass, mama. Badu became known for honey-laden songs that kicked butt, kissed your cheek, put a supporting hand behind your back, and made you laugh. Her beauty, her power, her unapologetic self made millions fall in love with her. Her debut album, Baduism, was like a love letter to parts of black women, black people. Badu was known for tracks 
like this. from her February 1997 triple platinum debut album, Badawism. And then came the best breakup track ever, Tyrone, and more albums, Mama's Gun in October 2000, album number three, Worldwide Underground in September 2003, her fourth album, New America Part One, followed by Part Two. Her fusion of R&B, jazz, and pure Erica created a musical, lyrical love affair for so many of us, me included. The first lady of Neo Soul, or the queen of Neo Soul, were her other names. And then came the tweets. In 140 characters, Erica Badu wrote that high school girls should wear longer skirts to avoid attracting or distracting men. In her series of tweets, she wrote, and I'm quoting now, there was an article ruling that high school girls lower their skirts so male teachers are not distracted. I agreed. Another tweet, we are sexual beings. We should consider everyone. Young girls are attractive. Some males are distracted. Another tweet, men automatically are attracted to women of childbearing age. And another tweet, if I had a school, I would make sure that the uniform skirt length was a nice knee length. It is fair to everyone. Sigh, Erica, Erica, Erica. Yabba Blay, let me start with you. Oh, Erica. Um, <laughs> I'm an Erica fan. Um, <laughs> I'm an Erica fan, and I'm, you know, like many of us on Twitter, we are often entertained by her Twitter shenanigans. Um, but this one rubbed people the wrong way, uh, definitely rubbed me the wrong way. And I think for me, because she, you know, these tweets are over the course of, what, like a week, like they're days of her defending this position because, of course, folks are tweeting back at her like, you know, what are you talking about? Um, but she's been holding firm to this position. For me, there there, there are lots of issues. A, from the original source um, and the original article that was talking about this particular policy at this school and girls needing to um, wear longer skirts essentially to not distract male students and male teachers, I found that problematic in and of itself. But then for her to come and support that and then add to that this idea that, well, we don't want to have a conversation about young girls' sexuality, for me, I just felt like was conflating the issues, right? So on the one hand... It's problematic in itself to somehow hold girls responsible for male desire, A. And then, B, there's this conflation about, you know, when we're talking about male teachers preying on female students, that has nothing to do with what they're wearing. And we know that sexual assault and sexual violation has very little to do with what the person is wearing because it's not about attraction as much as it is about power. Right. And so for Erica um, to be the voice that she is, um, to have the following that she does, to get on Twitter 
And because again, it's Twitter, right? You got 140 characters, so it's only so much you can say. Some conversations you should just leave alone or not have on Twitter. But again, she just held fast to it, um, you know, and she's still defending her position. And for me, I just think it's problematic, um, A, to make girls responsible or somehow feel responsible um, for men's predatory um, and, and problematic sexual behavior. And it's also problematic to somehow take men and boys off the hook as if they're these uncontrollable animals who just can't help themselves. So problems across the board for me. I mean, I think if we wanted, if, I think a progressive, if that's the word to use, um, way to even begin to approach this is to ask the question, well, why do girls have to wear skirts anyway? So if you're going to have a, 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 a uniform policy, let them all wear the same thing. You know, it's just so many issues. Dr. Truva Lindsay. Yes, so, so many issues. And <laughs> I've, you know, even... Even yesterday evening, there's still some tweets going out, and it's very perplexing. <laughs> yesterday evening, there were still tweets? Oh, my yes. God. And so trying to really process, again, that we have social media, and we often think about it as a space where we can have certain kinds of conversations, but 140-character conversations back and forth are not always the most productive. And I think at this point, the defense of the position has really led down a whole other path and really opened up a very painful conversation because there's this really dangerous conflation with sexuality and sexual violence. And we often talk about hypersexuality and the hyper presence of female sexuality in society, the over sexualization of girls and all of these other things, as though that has anything to do with a hypersexually violent society, which is really about dynamics of power, exploitation of power, exploitation of young girls. So nowhere in this is she actually centering female sexuality or youth sexuality, which I think is a worthwhile conversation in a substantive way, but really starting to normalize very problematic and violent constructions of male sexuality. And in that is saying that male sexuality becomes inextricable from sexual violence. That is deeply troubling to say that male sexuality is always at the, at the precipice of being sexual violence and saying that particularly these adult men that she's speaking on cannot help but be distracted or attracted to. Not even learning that in doing this, we're protecting girls is saying that that attraction or distraction, whatever they may be, and we can really unpack what that may mean um, for her, but that distraction and attraction then renders their sexuality as something that's already going to be sexually violent and that young girls have a responsibility to avoid that violence. That is rape culture. At its, at its most kind of basic core, disturbing, harmful, and it's not necessarily that I was overly shocked by the comments. It, were, it was hurtful, of course, but because that is not a sentiment that is uncommon, that what she is echoing, the kinds of policies that are being talked about are so often about the policing, regulation, and the restricting of female bodies and female sexuality because we believe so deeply that they are responsible for violence against those bodies, against our own bodies, and that we can't trust men 
or boys, as Dr. Blay was saying, to actually develop healthy sexualities, that we don't trust that we're doing that, which is also something that may in fact be true, that they're not developing healthy sexualities. But it means that we've then normalized sexual violence as a part of the experience that young girls should come to expect. And that does not produce a culture of consent, of pleasure, of sexual desire that is healthy and expressive and allows for young girls and women ultimately to make choices about their bodies that aren't always predicated upon the premise that men and boys will be sexually violent towards you. Therefore, you should prevent that by doing A, B, and C. Not A, B, and C in the first place should be producing healthier male sexuality so that sexual violence isn't even in the conversation when we're talking about interactions between male adults and young female students. I'm really reminded that um, the origins of victim blaming come from the mentality that if you would just do something with your skirt, then men would be okay. And it's such a dangerous thing for a number of reasons, all of which you've both cited, um, but also because the idea that girls can't get to enjoy their bodies um, and enjoy what they're wearing, that the idea that their, their bodies are not a site for, that is about or for their personal need or pleasure, but they have to constantly be looking out for how what they do uh, impacts some grown adult man uh, whom, according to Erica Badu's tweets, simply cannot help but be distracted or impacted or affected. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is it speaks to how the most toxic masculinity is formed, that you, you imbue a violence in the, the forming of your humanity, the idea that you simply can't help but be um, distracted. What about how you're taught about personal responsibility? What, do you, what about what you're taught about your own power, what you can do, who you can be, and how that works? What about what boys are or are not taught about? in terms of the difference between um, sexuality, sexual violence, the difference between sexual assault and why it's about power and it's nothing to do with your physicality, your sexuality, your um, looks, any of those things. And um, I think again and again about how we don't divide up the emotional labor of figuring out who we are as sexual beings. So in other words, all of this emotional labor is left for girls to do according to this series of tweets. And as you say, Treva, the thing that disturbs me the most, it's not uncommon. This is, I mean, really, this is kind of rape culture 101 in terms of how it's formed. And that level of belief that it's about a hem length, because then you say, okay, well, what happens if I'm wearing a hijab and an abaya and I'm covered from head to foot and then I still get raped? What, what is the scenario then? If you never come to the foundation of an abuse of power, a toxic masculinity and a culture that makes women responsible for the violence of men. If you never get to that and unpack and tackle that, you will always be in this space of blaming, defending, blaming, defending. And I also feel the, the limitation of, of Twitter with public figures in particular, but I guess so many of us, is the degree to which your ego gets... Um, uh, engaged, involved, and it kind of gets hired into defending a position, even if you think it's indefensible, that now your people are coming at you with all these different um, 
um, arguments as to what are you saying, the doubling down on position, because now it's, it becomes an ego conversation, is another part of what makes Twitter and social media so unsatisfactory for these kinds of conversations. And so, yes, Erica Badu, musically, you remain a goddess, but these tweets need a conversation. A conversation, you need to listen to your own track, didn't you know? Because this doesn't work. Doesn't work. for hot topic two ohio state university campus uprising hashtag reclaim osu ohio state university's bricker hall the seat of university administration became the site of protest for about eight hours on april 6th with dozens of students faculty and others occupying the area outside president michael drake's second floor office with a hashtag reclaim osu students demanded to be heard several advocacy groups joined in they complain that university officials failed to listen to students and are silencing them. The protest got ugly. When police showed up, video revealed threats and shoving by armed police against unarmed students. And then students were threatened with expulsion. Their faculty penned a letter to the university administration voicing their concern about student treatment and administration action in the site of peaceful protest. Ohio State University's protest mirrors those across the country as students demand action by university administrations who have either silenced, neglected, dismissed, or ignored them. Dr. Trevor Lindsay is a professor at Ohio State. So let me start with you. So a coalition of students who were already holding a protest action on campus, which included the Real Food Challenge, United Students Against Sweatshops, Committee for Justice in Palestine, OSU Coalition for Black Lives, and a, a couple of other um, organizations or representatives from organizations formed together to make several demands of the administration. Um, the first and primary were all of them coalesced around being the demand for uh, transparency around the budget for the university and a person assigned to uh, explain the budget and the investments that OSU was making because of um, a desire to understand where the money is going and who is OSU or what is OSU investing in. So that was the first demand, and then there were several demands after that, each one speaking directly to um, one of the groups. And so the students were asking that demand number one, the budget, and then at least one of the demands from one of the groups be met um, before the occupation would end. So several students um, went into Bricker Hall, which is the administrative building, which is where President Michael Drake's office is, and began to occupy the area lobby area outside of there. Students were chanting, singing, news spread fairly quickly because of venues like social media and Periscope about what was happening. And almost immediately the building was shut down and put on lockdown. And the students were then locked into the building, as we would say as protesters, where the administration's take is that the students were always free to leave at any point, but that would kind of defy the purpose of an occupation, if that were the case. And police, campus police were brought in pretty quickly into the situation. There were a couple of faculty members on site at the time, and several students and a few faculty and legal observers 
then began to come outside to support those who were inside. So we were not allowed in the building, and we were also not allowed to deliver food or homework or any of those kind of basic things to the students who were occupying the building. Um, at a certain point, the faculty decided it was in our best interest to allow the students really to have the space that they had created. And so allow may not be the right word here, but really support the students by a letting them be the voice of this as they were saying, we are a student movement, we are a student coalition. So we went home to kind of draft a letter of support for the students and after we went home, the situation escalated extremely quickly despite promises from those who were there, administrators who were there and the campus police who were on site that our students would be safe and our students would be okay. The video then shows Vice President uh, Casey threatening to not only have the students physically removed by the building and placed into a paddy wagon, but to say they would face expulsion if they did not vacate the building by 5 a.m. And this threat was quickly followed by another threat of that the students needed to immediately vacate the building or face those consequences. And the video is quite alarming. The video obviously at this point has gone viral and was disturbing, disgusting, and very against what I think should be the values of a university responding to student protesters who are peacefully assembled um, in a building, not causing any disruption significantly to the functioning of campus as it was primarily after hours at this point. And so I think faculty and, and staff and graduate students who sound, signed our letter of support, which we drafted that night, um, were all appalled, really, by the treatment of the student protesters. Well, that's your hour. Thank you to Treva Lindsay and Yaba Blay. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Armour. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.